A new analysis article on bmj.com discusses the story of a surgical colorectal trial that was started 30 years ago and lost. The story is published simultaneously with its research paper in BMJ Open. It's the first of the REIT papers, an initiative designed to complete the scientific record by restoring abandoned trials such as this one, or reanalyzing data from trials which were misreported. I'm Helen McDonald, the BMJ's analysis editor, and earlier I was joined in the studio by one of the authors of the research paper, Tom Treasure from University College London, and from the US by Peter Doshi from the University of Maryland, who's one of the instigators of the REIT initiative. So let's just rewind back to the beginning here. Um, and what we've got is a situation, so this is an oncology um, surgical study really, isn't it? Take us back to what was happening in clinical practice and what clinical scenario this trial sort of began to address. Well, it was clear at the time uh, that of the patients who had what appeared to be a curative colorectal cancer operation, uh, a proportion recurred uh, over the course of the next few years, particularly early on in the first year or two. Uh, the what that was being attempted was going back and reopening the abdomen and looking around for secondaries in the liver, lymph node spread, and local recurrence, and operating in the hope that you would improve it, improve their lot, and maybe cure some. Now, unfortunately, with all studies of that type, they're incredibly highly selected. So the few successes, apparent successes, you have no idea of the denominator or even the intention to treat. Uh, so by detecting earlier by the use of what was then pretty new carcinoembryonic antigen, uh, which is a blood marker tied quite closely uh, to colon cancer, in a general screening, not very good, but once you know a patient has had colon cancer and the CEA has been up and gone down again, if it goes back up, that is highly uh, predictive of recurrent disease. So it was the use of that marker to get in earlier and target patients who could be cured by a second operation. Hmm. That was the vision. That was the vision of the, of the study. And... So what did they actually do? Tell us about the people of this trial. Who were they and what happened to them? Uh, the researchers? The participants the first. The participants yeah. first. They were people who'd had a colorectal cancer operation uh, and had been asked if they would then, after a likely a good chance of cure, uh, allow this test to be done on them, uh, but the result not to be disclosed. Okay. And then, uh, for many of them, it never went down and they weren't cured, or it went down and it stayed down, and there was no justification for intervening. But for some, it went back up again, and that's where the randomization occurred. Okay. Uh, that uh, of the patients who had signaled a recurrence, uh, those randomized to have it not disclosed, it was just kept entirely in the laboratory mm -hmm. and not disclosed to anybody. So those who signalled uh, were, uh, were offered further surgery. Um, and the surgeons, what was interesting about it and very powerful as a trial, 
was those 108 patients weren't just not identifiable from the other 108 patients randomised, but all the others of the 1,447. So it, it, it was very it was impossible for uh, any degree of bias to be imposed. They just were told, the surgeons were told, your patient has a rise, suspected recurrence, please get on with it. Um, so you explain in the paper that they... The trial started a long time ago. It was running and running. The recruitment wasn't going so well. And eventually, in a way, in 93, the hand of the trial investigators was slightly forced because the, the data monitoring committee said, we're going to have a look and well, I think you it need was to a stop now. It was a protocol okay. step that they would look at 100 and at 200. Okay. And they looked at 200. In fact, it was 208 by the time they did the analysis and found uh, the findings were sufficient made it absolutely improbable that they would show benefits so so they called a halt so they called it to a halt and what happened well uh when the data were looked at uh there was no significant difference between those in whom this signal had been positive and they had the opportunity to have it acted upon there was a small shift in the other directions about three patient difference but in the in the direction against effectiveness. Now, you will always get that with an ineffective treatment, which includes an operation, because the operation has risks. And all major surgery is a trade-off of inescapable hazard, risk of death, morbidity, and so on, being uh, overridden by a greater benefit. And if there's no benefit, you always see a, a uh, a disadvantage to the surgery, and there are, I can give you examples of that, but that's what happened. So having seen no benefit, uh, the Data Monitoring Committee advised the trial should be stopped uh, because it was doing some harm but no good. So we knew back in 93, or the investigators knew back in 93, that it was unlikely that there was going to be any benefit to patients by adopting this approach of tumour marker testing um, and if it was positive, operating. Um, so how did that message get lost? Well, um, they wrote the manuscript and the primary outcome of interest uh, was uh, survival. And as I told you, there was a, a small disadvantage to having this operation, but no hint of benefit um, and enough patients that the chance of a useful effect size emerging uh, was remote. Um, so it was in the hands then of the trial manager uh, doing, who had the numbers and doing the analysis and a surgeon. Um, and between them, they, they got bogged down would be my interpretation. There are some notes written on the manuscript. And the surgeon, as surgeons do, was hoping to find some subset who did benefit, was looking for some good news in it. And it, I, I think it wasn't there. And I don't think it was an appropriate thing to do, to dig through looking for subsets. Um, and, and basically, they went their separate ways. And it, this is a lesson to be learned. The trial was uh, too vulnerable to losing the key people. They would, it relied too much on p 
people's knowledge and memory and, and then ability to go through the record, it wasn't robust. It didn't have the sort of set, set out system of data recording that you would require for another trial centre to take that on. Hmm. So tell us who was involved and then what, what resulted in in this just not getting out there. Well, it it was basically one surgeon and one analyst. Okay. Um, the nobody else seems to have played any part in it, um, and they they were they were able to go away. One left the department, the manager, and the surgeon had been promoted and was beginning his getting involved with his growth of his career, uh, and they left it on the shelf. It lay on the shelf, in, uh, figuratively speaking, um, until early 2000s, and it was then sent out in a hope of finding what was going on, because th- I guess there were other people, but f- from about 2004-05, I began to ask what's happened to this trial, because mm. it was relevant to my current work. Mm. And they'd asked two statisticians who looked at it, and they'd reported... Uh, that, oh, it was a mess, uh, the data were corrupt, it couldn't be retrieved. Um, they, and it, there's some truth that it was difficult <laughs> because it was not at all easy, but we did it and can trust the data. And uh, again, I don't think uh, there was the energy or determination to say, we really want to know. OK, it'll mm. take time, but let's do it. Uh, mm. It was allowed to lapse. Peter, coming to you, what what did you make of this story? Was this the kind of trial that you imagined being restored as the first one? No, I, this is the exact opposite of what I imagined. Um, <laughs> when we wrote the riot concept, we really had uh, on our mind industry uh, trials of drugs. And so instead of a drug, here we have a surgery trial. Instead of industry, we have academia. And the expectations about the bookkeeping, the sort of organized storage of data are quite the opposite here with what uh, Professor Treasure has explained, you know, the disorganized uh, data storage with these quite, it sounds, un- unclear lines of responsibility. So the, that this came up as the first uh, riot manuscript actually was quite a surprise. Uh, a nice surprise, but it was a surprise for sure. Tom. Coming back to you, we've now got this trial restored, and you said this you were interested in this because it it was relevant to clinical work that you're doing now. Um, what do you think it means today? Well, um, I think it remains highly relevant. And uh, in January, in JAMA, uh, the FACTS trial reported, which is uncannily similar. And that was a trial in which patients had CEA measured, CT scans done, or both, in a very rigorous, high-intensity protocol. And this uh, is for colorectal cancer cancer that had been treated curatively to start with. Exactly. It's very, very similar. And a fourth group, so it was a two-by-two randomization, and the fourth group had neither. The survival was better in those who did not, who had minimal uh, monitoring and only a response to symptoms. There was no difference between the intensity of monitoring, so one or other or both of CEA and CT had similar results. 
there was a small excess of deaths, and this is a much bigger number. There were about 1,200 patients altogether in four groups of about 300. And uh, I would think it was probably done in a much more rigorous way in terms of trial management. Uh, and, and you have to remember that in the 1980s, we were all struggling with software which kept changing. We had apricots and radio shacks and apples and, uh, and so on. And eventually it settled down. But I computed throughout the 1980s. Uh, and you, you couldn't pass a disk from one person to another. We had no email. We had no electronics uh, transfers. Uh, so it was much more difficult. But if coming back to this recent study, it shows just the same thing, that uh, the survival uh, of patients who were not monitored is a couple of percent higher uh, than the other three groups which are themselves similar. So again, you see uh, that the inevitable harm of surgery emerges as the only signal, albeit a weak one. And what makes that even more worrying is that they try, They originally were going to have that as the primary outcome of interest, but the data monitoring committee there informed them that that would never show up. So they changed the outcome, this is this recent study facts, to uh, p patients who were candidates for uh, curative surgery. Well, in what sense curative? Because the reverse was the case. But the study is written up with the belief they are doing good retained when the evidence, if you read the paper, is that they were not. So, so if 20 years ago, we knew that. <laughs> yeah, so in a way, we've lost ourselves 20 yep. years. Uh, that, well, that's my view. You'll find, you'll find some alternative <laughs> opinions. But they don't, you know, that, that's, that is the conclusion one has to draw from a study which embarked on uh, an attempt to demonstrate better survival in uh, the 1980s. And again, this one mm. just published last year, same motivation, same outcome of interest, same conclusion. No, it doesn't work. How does this play into clinical practice today? What is your gold standard care currently for a patient diagnosed with colorectal cancer? You think you can go in and do a curative operation. What is currently happening in terms of follow-up for these patients? Well, NICE has recommended on the basis of belief uh, that they should have both CEA and CT monitoring, and it's pretty intensive. Okay. Um, the, uh, and therefore, the FACTS trial actually tests that and finds it not to benefit people, which, as you can imagine, we've already pointed out uh, to NICE. I haven't revealed the, 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 the riot paper because I had the FACTS paper to, to show them, and that's, uh, uh, we're discussing that at the moment. I'm in touch with them. And what what brought it to my attention was that as a thoracic surgeon, I was being increasingly asked to remove uh, lung secondaries, metastases from the lungs due to colorectal cancer. And I knew that the evidence was only descriptive and pretty weak, which is why I said, what about that trial? To, to John Northover, who uh, was a contemporary of mine, and we, we'd worked together, we'd been registrars together. What happened to your trial? And he said, oh, God, don't ask me. It's too terrible. Because he was filled with disappointment that his trial had foundered. Um, and as you know, we've 
we've talked to him since we waited till we completed our analysis but we've talked to him and uh, he's he's fully aware of it and accepts the data as being the data he would have liked to have published 20 years ago yes peter have you got any questions yeah well i was uh, i wanted to reflect on this from the perspective of um wasted research you know uh avoidable waste in research and so you know, Professor Treasure, do you feel that there is an enormous amount of avoidable waste that's occurred as a result of this trial not being published for essentially 20 years? Well, if people believe both facts and this study, uh, a lot of people have been subjected to surgery which we should have known will not benefit them. Now, people will argue with that. They won't accept it from me. It'll take a little bit more persuasion and reading. But that is my view based on the evidence of two randomized trials. Um, and the other thing is that it has been said for years, and I have written this up elsewhere with respect to uh, uh, metastasectomy, oh, you can't do a randomized trial. So they've deliberately not found out when... The other thing that this study showed was that you could, and they did do a randomized trial. And so, as you stated, I think the trial was negative. At, at the same time, there's no evidence that it created extra harm, or actually, did it create a harm? Oh to well, uh, well. Uh, if you take a series of patients and they're uh, they're not young people, and you open their abdomen, so you cut apart their liver, and so on, of course, you do harm. All surgery of that magnitude is based on a background of harm done uh, against which the benefit must emerge. So, of course, there was harm done to them. And waste, if, if there is no benefit done by that sort of surgery, you've, you've used up the last months of their lives uh, doing investigations, bringing them back in, operating on them. Uh, a lot of the patients having liver resections uh, go to the intensive care unit afterwards, which will give you a measure that it is not a trivial matter. And uh, the real devotees of lung metastasectomy say, oh, you've got to open both sides of the chest to feel the lungs for the metastases you can't see. You know, they're, they're, they're pretty messianic about it. So, of course, they do harm. Is that that for me, is, is what's, what's most concerning here. Yeah, is yeah. If you have cultures uh, in medicine that are pretty much impervious to evidence, then we have a real problem. Well, we've got a real challenge, and I don't mind taking it up. <laughs> <laughs> well, that seems like a good place to stop. It was indeed a very fascinating clinical debate and also a great start, hopefully, to a long line of REACT publications. The article we've been discussing today, Operating to Remove Recurrent Colorectal Cancer, Have We Got It Right?, is now available on bmj.com, where you can tell us what you think by leaving a rapid response. Thanks for listening. <laughs>